Well, good morning, everybody. If you are new in the room today or online, my name's Troy. I'm the pastor here. And you have joined us for the last week of our series that is called Over the Fence. Now, this series is to better help us understand our neighbour, particularly the religion of our neighbour. And chances are the neighbour living next door to you has a very different religion to you. And so this series is to help us understand them a little bit more so that we can help engage with them, so we can talk to them a little bit more. And um, because ultimately what we know is that Jesus is important to talk about. We know, don't we, that Jesus is something that is the most important thing in our lives. So why wouldn't you want to talk about Jesus? But the thing is that we don't know a lot of times how to talk to, to, to uh, about Jesus to our neighbour who may have a different religion to ourselves. And so this series is to help understand what our neighbours may believe who may have a different religion to us so that we can then engage them in conversation. Because ultimately, when we engage in conversation, we are fulfilling our church's vision a whole lot more. And what is our church's vision? Well, say it along with me. Surely you must be getting used to it now. Our vision is to see Northwest Sydney be engaged and transformed with the faith, hope and love of Jesus. And so this series that we're doing at the moment, the Over the Fence series, is to help us with the engaged part of our vision. It is to help us engage Northwest Sydney with the faith, hope and love of Jesus. Now, what we know from the 2021 census information is that Northwest Sydney is made up of lots of different people with lots of different faiths. Large proportions of our community um, are of the Hindu faith as well as the Muslim faith. And we had a look at those, um, those faiths, what those people believe over the last couple of weeks. Um, but, but we are, there's a lot more other faiths in our, in our region as well. Now, um, we are to love our neighbour regardless of what beliefs they may have today or what beliefs they may have for the rest of their lives. But we can't help though. We are compelled to talk about Jesus considering the significance of Jesus is in world history and in our own life. But where some of our neighbours may already have a belief in God of sorts already, they have a belief in the transcendent already, that's very different to another neighbour that we may have, and that is our no-religion neighbour. Now, according to the 2021 census data, 20% of our local area have no religion at all. They are atheists or they are humanists, agnostics, or people who have no, don't identify with any religion at all. 20%, which is a tick over 15,000 people in our local area. Nationally, it's even more so. Nationally, 39% of our Australian population say they have no religion at all, which is up from 30% in 2016. So this no religion uh, perspective, worldview that people have is only increasing and increasing dramatically. And so that is why it's important for us as a church to actually understand a little bit more about this perspective that so many and an increasing number of people in our community have. So to actually help us then be able to engage with our neighbour a little bit more rather than simply a smile and a wave over the fence. Now, many social commentators, maybe even a few people in our world, have taken this 
census information, this dramatic increase in no religion, and they have boldly and they have often uh, arrogantly proclaimed, see, God is dead, as I always knew, because look how many more people believe that God is dead. Now, I don't know how those proclamations and those attitudes of people in your world make you feel. No, I'm serious. When people make those bold proclamations, see, there is no God. Look how many more people are in our society are believing there's no existence of God. When they boldly and so arrogantly say that sometimes, how does it make you feel? For me, it makes me feel like I'm one of David's brothers. Now, you know, David, David who would end up being uh, perhaps Israel's greatest and well-known king, one of David's brothers. Now, if you know the story, you know that David's brothers go and join the rest of the Israelites under the leadership of King Saul to fight the Philistines. On one side of the Valley of Elah, you have the Israelites. On the other side, you had the Philistines. And then out walks Goliath. Goliath, this huge, imposing Philistine warrior who just walks out into the middle and starts saying, you Israelites, you are nothing. Your God is nothing. And this, and this just went on day after day. This Goliath just gone taunting the Israelites all along. What are you believing in that for? You guys are idiots. And this went on day after day. Now, in the face of such an imposing figure and verbal barrage, David's brothers like all the other Israelites did, they hid in fear, not wanting to engage this Goliath. They simply wanted to stay in the safety of their tents, in the safety of their dwellings, and not go out and engage Goliath. Does that in any way describe how you feel when our modern-day Goliath stands up and says, you guys who believe in God, you are nothing. Why do you believe that? How does it make you feel? Do you want to hide? Do you want to shrink back and go, I just don't want to go there. I'm going to stay within the safety of my own house, in the safety of my own friends, and I'm just going to stay there, and I'm hoping that it all just goes away. Is that how you feel? In light of the things that are being said and promoted in modern-day society? Sometimes I feel like, I'm one of David's brothers. I wish, though, I was more like David. David, whose scripture describes as a man after God's own heart. What does David do? David goes and engages Goliath. Because David had a love of God like very few other people had. David, to David, God was so real. And he goes, I'm going out to engage Goliath. So like David, I wonder if we, when we say that we are people after God's own heart, I wonder if we are prepared to go and engage. Now, unlike David, we're not to go out and actually engage our Goliath to the death. But like David, we are to go and engage nonetheless, nonetheless. You see, our engagement that we are to have as people of God, as Jesus followers, is not to win the argument, is not to win some philosophical battle 
but our goal is simply to go and start a conversation. In that regard, we all then can be Davids. We all can be Davids because we are to be people who are after God's own heart. So today is not to help you win some argument with your atheist neighbour because let's face it, we have no real comeback when our atheist neighbour comes and says, I'm not going to believe in God because why would God's church, why would God's people do all that stuff to kids? We've got no comeback to that, do we? And that's often their default argument about why they reject the notion of God is because look what happened in religious institutions. So today is going to be something a little bit different. Today is to help you understand your no-religion neighbour a little bit more, to ultimately help you ask questions that may speak to their heart and their beliefs and make no mistake about it. Your no-religion neighbour, even if they tick the no-religion box on the census form, they absolutely believe something. Now, the ideas, concepts and constructs of a no-religion position is not as simple as you may initially think. It is incredibly complex and delves deep into the topic of philosophy and sociology. If you're not quite sure about that, go and talk to Mark Pickett afterwards and he will tell you all a lot about philosophy and a little bit of sociology. Is, is, is sociology in there is a little bit as well, Mark? A, a, a little bit as well. Now, one of the great works on this topic was done by a guy called Professor Charles Taylor, who in 2007 published his now famous book called A Secular Age which was to try and understand the change in society over the last few hundred years from a religious society to a secular one. Now, reading this, his thoughts, reading Taylor's thoughts on this is trying to walk through wet concrete and gumboots. It's incredibly hard to try and understand the things that he was talking about. So to try and help those of us who aren't professors in this area um, understand what Taylor is saying a little bit more, a guy called James K.A. Smith wrote this book trying to unpack and simplify Taylor about, it's called, you know, how not to be secular. And so, so much of what I'm going to be talking about today comes from Smith's work on Taylor. Now, this book there from, from um, Smith is actually a really good read. If that sort of stuff interests you, you can get it from Kurong, and it's a really, really great read if you want to find out more about that. Now, you may, have remember, may remember that I've mentioned a few times now that when it comes to engagement, we engage people not with what we know, but rather with the questions that we ask. Now, often what we know has been seen with us simply blurting out our spiritual information, often when it's not invited, or often we blurt stuff out in response to what People have questions that people have asked us about Jesus or about other spiritual topics. But one of the really important things that we must understand when it comes to our no religion neighbour is that they're not asking questions about God or even about the afterlife. They're not asking those questions. So from their perspective, there is nothing missing from their lives. So there is no God-shaped hole in their lives, which many of us would say, well, that can only be filled with Jesus. There is no God-shaped hole in a no-religion person. This secular age, as Taylor calls it, then is not some modern-day phenomenon that has just appeared on the scene. In fact, it's been developing for hundreds of years, even from the time of the Reformation with Luther. 
Now, what we're seeing today, though, is a fuller and more dramatic expression of secularism called exclusive humanism. That's what Taylor calls it, which means a worldview that is able to account for meaning and significance without any need for God at all. So in this worldview, which is gaining momentum, it says many things. One of the first things that it says, it says that you don't need God or you don't need some other transcendent being to find meaning and significance in your life. Now, if you have that as a foundation, then the next step in that is saying then that leads you yourself to ultimately define what is meaning for your life. And that gets expressed in a particular way. That gets expressed in increasing amounts of individualism, which I'm sure that you have seen. TV ads all over the place now says it's all about you. Have it your way. Live life the way that you want. Now, this individualism has been expressed in many ways, but particularly in growing ways in the 20th century. For a, for a good part of the 20th century, particularly the mid to later parts, this individualism was expressed primarily through fashion. It is what you wore that ultimately it was an expression of your individualism. I want to be part of the surfing culture. I want to be part of that culture. This is who I am. So this is going to be reflected in what I wear. Now, that's changed a little bit because what has what we've seen a dramatic increase in more recent times is people getting tattooed. Tattoos now are the expression of individualism. And it's often that it's within the tattoos themselves that actually expresses what is meaningful and significant to a particular person. So we've seen, haven't we, that, that massive increase in the amount of tattoos, people wearing tattoos there. That's an expression of individualism. But now that's moved again. And now what is ultimately the expression of individualism these days is with sexual and gender identity. That now is the front line of exclusive humanism because ultimately it is around your sexual and your gender identity which is the ultimate expression of who you are of who you are. American pastor, a guy called Tim Keller, who recently passed, says it's about creating your own self-identity. If I say that I am this, then this is who I am. And so what we find now is that with this development of exclusive humanism and, and the real focus on sexual and gender identity, if you have a different view to that then this Goliath, this militant and often aggressive response to a different view is only escalating, and particularly if your different view comes from a religious foundation. Now, often the traditional battleground between these two sides have been around the apparent hypocritical nature of the secular promotion of individualistic expressions, which is perfectly represented in Lunig's cartoon here that we can see. Thanks, Kate. And this position now is now a foundational one for modern-day society. We're a tolerant society, 
But for those with a different view, you will be rejected. You will be excluded unless you believe exactly what we believe. But we're a tolerant society. Now, engaging your no-religion neighbour about the apparent flaw in this thinking, about tolerance and acceptance of the individual, won't actually get you anywhere with them. It's not a good idea to point out how, they, how, that, how flawed that thinking is. It won't actually get you anywhere. And if you do engage around that argument, it'll end up being a more traditional David and Goliath fight to the death sort of thing, rather than actually having an engaging conversation. Now, this ever-increasing focus on the individual and the search for meaning and significance in this world, in this life and in ourselves has ultimately provided the perfect breeding ground for where belief in a God becomes unthinkable and that there is something wrong with you if you do believe in God. Now, a good portion of the no-religion neighbours have actually gone to this end of exclusive humanism where there is no God at all. And if you believe in God, if you believe in a transcendent being then you are a child, then you are an immature human. Now, it's not that these no-religion people have actually killed God, because they will say, well, God never existed, and so you can't kill what has never existed. But a good portion of our no-religion neighbours have gone to this end of the spectrum, saying there is no God at all. In fact, believing in God is something that means there's something wrong with you. Now, that's what a vast majority of people who have no religion perspective actually believe, but not all of them. Many no religion people haven't gone all the way to eliminate God altogether, but they have simply moved enough away from the notion of a God to arrive at what they believe is meaningful and significant in their lives. And what that is is based on what they have and what is around them. Now, for many no-religion people, Taylor says, even though they believe that they have found meaning and significance apart from God, they are still haunted by the notion of the divine. They are haunted by God, even though they convince themselves that their life is just fine without him. Now, author Mark Lilla writes this, he says, to most humans, curiosity about higher or transcendent things comes naturally. It's indifference to them that must be learnt. So in other words, this secular worldview that is growing in momentum all the time is teaching people how to be indifferent to the things of God and rejects people's curiosity about God altogether. Why do you have a curiosity about God? That's not right. That's not good. Don't be curious about God because God doesn't exist. See, in the past, people have been on a quest to try and understand who God is a whole lot more. They're trying to understand God a whole lot more. And so they can then understand themselves in reference to or comparison to who God actually is. But now this exclusive humanism, the quest is rather to understand who I am. And I don't need God to tell me that. 
I can discover who I am all by myself. Thank you very much. I don't, and so God is ultimately irrelevant to my life. I don't need him. A few years ago, a few years ago now, perhaps too many years for some of us, but in 1979, thanks Ed, 1979 English rock group Supertramp released a song called The Logical Song. And The Logical Song, many of us may know who The Logical Song is. The Logical Song was the songwriter's experience of going to boarding school to be taught how to be a good modern day citizen. The interesting thing about The Logical Song is it actually tells about the journey of many no-religion people as they've gone through to discover exactly who they are, supposedly. So what I want to do this morning is that I want to play part of a logical song for you. And I want you to listen and I want you to read the lyrics because if you want to try and understand a little bit more about what has gone on with the increase of our secular culture and where our no-religion neighbours might actually be today, this song reflects it so well. So let's watch this clip now. Thanks.
How does that song make you feel? Many of us will know that song, yeah? Maybe reflecting some of our age. This song so perfectly reflects Taylor's second age argument about the change from, initially from an enchanted view of life where there's God and Taylor's saying that those who have an enchanted view of life with God, they are children, immature. But now you need to grow up. You need to move into the mature position. You need to get disenchanted with God and that ultimately you get to a place where believing God becomes unthinkable, illogical. And that ultimately the best place for us to be and that what society is to teach you is to be ultimately rely on the logical, on the rational, to rely on ourselves. And so where we in the past have typically asked the question, God, please tell me who I am, please God, tell me who you are, the prevailing question now for many people is, as the song reflects, please tell me who I am. Because when it comes to the issue of identity, particularly around sexual and gender identity, so many people now continue to ask the question, please tell me who I am. Because we're not quite sure. The world is trying to tell you what your identity should be, but ultimately we are left with these prevailing questions, particularly when, we're, when all the world's asleep. Please tell me who I am. And that's the prevailing question of our no-religion neighbour. Please tell me who I am. It's their million-dollar question. So, if that's what they're asking, then how can we engage with those people who are thinking along those lines? Well, here are some questions that you might want to ask your no-religion neighbour to engage them a whole lot more. Here's some questions that you might want to consider using. We can start off by saying this. What's a world lived life look like? What do you understand that to be? You can, that's a good place to start. Maybe someone, another question is saying, tell me about the rhythm of your life. Where do you find meaning in your routine of life? You know, most people's lives are set by routine. You get up, you go to work, you come home, you go to bed, you get up, you go to work, you come home, you go to bed. On the weekend, you might mow the lawns, you might do a bit of housework, you might watch the footy, you might have coffee with family or friends. But that's it, week in, week out. You can set your clock by it. It's so regular. So the issue is saying, well, where do you find meaning in your routine of life? That's an interesting question to ask. Here's another one. How do you want to be different from where you are and who you are now? The subtext to that is, can you do that by yourself? Because what we have to recognise is saying, as soon as you take out the presence of God, the reality of God in your life, then if you want to be different from where you are and who you are today, it is all about self-improvement. So it's all up to you, to you, for you to be different from who you are and where you are. Can you do that? You see, without a God, there is no such thing as transformation. Because God is in the transformation business, making people radically different. But if there's no God, there's no transformation. And so any change from where you are and who you are today is all up to you. It's all on your shoulders. 
Interesting question. Here's another one. Do you have those moments where you can't shake that sense that there must be something more? You know, moments of impending foreboding or on the cusp of elation from some sort of achievement and you're left asking the question, is that it? It's got to be something more, isn't there? It's another question. And, of course, you come to the big one. How do you find meaning in death? Do you wish for the eternal? See, what we often forget is saying no religion people go to funerals as much as we do. And so we, go to, we ultimately come back and got to ask them a question, where do you find meaning in death? Now, these are just some of the questions that actually get to the heart of the beliefs of your no religion neighbour. But notice that none of them initially concern God at all. You see, what we have to remember is that our no religion neighbour has, for the most part, rejected the notion of God of meeting God in their life, even right through to rejecting the notion of his existence at all. So in our questions and in our conversations, how do we recognise and affirm the difficulty of belief? Now, we may think that belief in God perhaps should be the most easiest, most natural, and is the logical option. But what we forget is that our no-religion neighbour, they think exactly the same way, but exactly opposite. They think that belief in, in God, in no, no belief in God, should be the easiest, most natural and most logical position to hold. Now, when it comes to our Muslim or our Hindu neighbour, where there's already, already in a frame of reference and talking about the divine, talking about the transcendent, we can talk very similarities. Yes, they may be apples and oranges, but we're talking about fruit. But not with your no-religion neighbour. Not with them at all. See, we have to acknowledge the difficulty of belief for them in light of what they've been living by, what the world has taught them, and so ultimately what they believe. You may have heard of a thing called apologetics, yeah? Apologetics are lines of discussion to help defend the good news of Jesus. Now, last week we spoke about whether Allah would let a Muslim into heaven based on the example of whether a good judge would let a murderer go free from court if he simply said he's sorry. Now, that's an example of apologetics where there is a thoughtfully constructed argument to get to the reality of Jesus. However, in Smith's book, and, and, and reflecting upon a secular age that Taylor writes about, he says a better approach to apologetics when it comes to your no-religion neighbour is actually unapologetic witnessing. Not apologetic witnessing, unapologetic witnessing, which primarily involves attentive listening. How do you listen to somebody? You ask questions. You ask questions. There is no more important time to ask questions than when it comes to engaging your no-religion neighbour. And they don't have to be questions about God. Because remember, we don't have to talk about God. We have to talk about them. And about their perspective. And about what they think. And about where they find meaning and significance in their life. The most important thing to do when it comes to engaging no-religion people, is to listen in what they say to the questions that you ask. This is important for all of our 
neighbours who may be of a different belief system of our, than, than ours, but particularly when it comes to the, our no-religion neighbour. But one of the things we must recognise, though, is the spiritual reality of exclusive humanism. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of a good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Paul writes here that there's the, the reality is that those people, particularly our no-religion neighbours, they are blinded to the reality of Jesus. Now imagine this scene for a moment. You see a blind person walking down the street with their cane. And within their sweep of their cane, they fail to pick up a street sign that's immediately in front of them and they walk straight into it. And I'm not quite sure if that's happened for you before, Graham, or, or, or not, but it could have. It has. <laughs> it has. See, even with the cane, you still don't know how to pick up everything that's before you. And the blind man runs into a street sign. What's your response? Do you laugh? Do you think, oh, <laughs> he should have known better? How could you be so silly to not have seen that? Do you ridicule them under your breath? Do you just ignore what has happened? Or do you have compassion upon them? Maybe you just pray for them at a distance? Or do you patiently help them? knowing that they are probably proud and fiercely independent and may initially reject your offer of help, but help they need nonetheless in that particular situation. If people, particularly our no-religion neighbour, have been spiritually blinded to the reality of Jesus because of the work of Satan, then what are we to do as Jesus followers? What are we to do? We are to ask questions. We are to ask questions. So we engage them to hopefully the scales of their eyes fall off and they understand the light that comes from Jesus, the light that is Jesus. That's what I hope. Now, just to finish off today, as Tim, Timothy Keller says, if today you, you here in this room or online you're seeking to understand who you are. If you're trying to understand your identity, then can I just say this to you this morning? In this modern world, the identity that you choose, that you choose to have, is incredibly hard to live up to. Because whenever you choose a particular identity, you have to live up to those expectations and the expectations of those who share a similar identity to you. And if you don't live up to that, if you fail in some particular way, you're letting yourself and all those other people down as well. It's an incredible burden to carry, an incredible pressure to carry for you to live up to, for you to perform to that identity. But what many of us don't, don't realise is that it's the identity that Jesus Christ gives us it is an identity that is received, not achieved. Because what we actually understand is that when it comes to Jesus, it doesn't matter how well or bad we go. 
He still loves us. And he's still forgiven us. See, Jesus gave up his identity, his, his heavenly identity. He gave up the glory and the power and he came down into our earth to, to, to walk amongst us, to die on the cross, to forgive us of our inhumanity towards God and our inhumanity towards each other. And it is what Jesus has done in which we grab, our, we get our identity. We receive the identity of love, the love, the saying, I am known and I am loved by God. We receive a love identity. And so we don't have to live up to, we don't have to perform to an identity anymore. We just have to receive the identity of love. Now, some of us here today, we're trying to still work out what our identity actually is. But if you are somebody who wants to find out a little bit more about your identity, or if you want to receive the identity that comes from Jesus, an identity of love and being known by God, they would love to talk with you afterwards. Online, if that's you today, they would like to talk with you during the week, please get in contact with me. I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about that. So much of the world today is trying to understand who we are. Please tell me who I am. We sang a song earlier on that Michael and Kirsty said, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It is who I am. It is who I am. It is who I am. So much of the world is trying to tell you what your identity should be. How about receive from Jesus the identity that you are to have, an identity of being known and being loved. If that's you today, please come and see me later. I'd love to talk with you about that. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to give you thanks and praise that today is such an important day for us to understand a little bit more about our no-religion neighbour. Lord, we, chances are that our no-religion neighbour are good people. They're great people. But Lord, we recognise that they have been blinded by Satan to your reality. And I pray, Lord God, that we may have compassion upon them and that we may help them by active listening to them. Lord, give us courage. Give us courage to engage with questions to ultimately lead to a place where they may be able to see you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I want to pray for all of those people listening to my voice right now who may be struggling with the issue of identity. They're not unsure about who, who they are as a result of the influences of this world. But in you, we know that we find, we receive the identity of being known and being loved by you. Lord, I ask so much now that you help all of us either receive that identity for ourselves or be prepared and courageous like David to engage in a conversation where that identity may be received by them all through what you have done and all because of who you are, Lord Jesus. I want to pray now for all of us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.